On November 22, 1963, when he was hardly past his first thousand days in office, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was killed by an assassin's bullet as his motorcade wound through Dallas. People remember John F. Kennedy as a president who was young and energetic, but he is also remembered as a leader who made a difference. This was the fourth presidential assassination in a nation that was less than 200 years old. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and Tapophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. I have my best conspiracy theory analyst with me here today. I have Dalit. Uh, hi. <laughs> Is that my title? It's your new title. <laughs> Gotta put that on my Facebook bio. <laughs> <laughs> For President's Day, we are taking the listeners to Dallas, Texas, where you and I and Taylor and Marcus visited the JFK Memorial. Yeah, it was pretty wild to be in the same area where JFK was assassinated. It was. Didn't it feel kind of surreal to be right in that place? Yeah. I mean, then you had like, was it like, was it two X's, right? Is it the X's on the road? Yeah, there was an X on the road. And we saw the sixth floor window in which Oswald stood. Oh, yeah. And they have like a hole there or something, right? There was something like a... Like a dot. Another X or something that was on the window so you could see which one it was. Yeah, it was kind of solemn. I feel like anytime you're somewhere where you know that someone lost their life, it feels different there. Honestly. It was kind of crazy, actually, because you had it all in one, like, viewpoint. Like, in my peripheral vision, I could see the X and the dot or whatever in the window where he Mm -hmm. shot it from. So I was like, there was literally a dude up there. And there was a dude down there. And yeah. said dude up there, shot said dude down there. It was pretty wild. It was It was wild. The John F. Kennedy Memorial Plaza was dedicated on June 24th, 1970. And in the years since, it's become an integral part of the city's urban landscape and cultural heritage. It's located one block east of Dealey Plaza, where he was assassinated, between Main and Commerce Streets, on land donated by... Dallas County. Oh, and then there was the memorial monument, the cenotaph of President Kennedy as well. It was a lot different than I thought your normal president's memorial would be. Exactly. Almost picture a big Grecian temple-looking memorial or something like that. Or a big statue or bust of their face. But this was really different. What we learned about it was that it was designed by renowned American architect Philip Johnson, and it was designed like an open tomb, and so it symbolizes the freedom of President Kennedy's spirit. And the memorial, it's a giant square, roofless room, 30 feet high and 50 by 50 feet wide, and it sits in the middle of the block with narrow openings facing north and south. The walls consist of 72 white 
precast concrete columns, most of which seem to float with no visible support 29 inches above the ground. Eight columns extend to the ground, acting as legs that seem to hold up the monument. Each column ends in a light fixture, and at night, the lights create the illusion that the light itself supports the structure, which we didn't see at night, so we'll have to look up some photos. But these vertical elements, rigorously separated from each other and individually poured, seem held together by an unseen, invisible force. The architect once called it a magnetic force and suggested a connection to the charisma of the living John F. Kennedy. The space is aesthetically simple and the intent was to be a thoughtful piece of art. Inside the open tomb is a large square granite block about one foot high with his name engraven and gold on the side, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Just that simple. The space had been attended for reflection and remembrances, yet as more visitors came to the Kennedy Memorial Plaza and to the nearby Dealey Plaza, it became clear that an exhibit was needed to explore the topic of the Kennedy assassination. And so the sixth floor museum at Dealey Plaza had its beginnings. And then people get up on top of the block of granite and pose and take pictures. And I don't know if that's exactly what it was intended for. Definitely but not. I know a certain teenager that has a Randy Horton pose on top of it. Yeah. I don't know. I think the whole exhibit thing is kind of interesting. It's mm -hmm. just it's this big block. Concrete the, square. Yeah, it's a big room. concrete square in the middle of this you know, plaza. And I don't know. It's different. <laughs> yeah, we thought, okay, I guess you can reflect in there. It just has his name. It was interesting. And so they decided to make the Texas School Book Depository there on the sixth floor where assassin Lee Harvey Oswald had positioned himself for the shooting into a museum dedicated to JFK's assassination. And it's called the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza. On President's Day in 1989, the sixth floor exhibit opened as a response to the many visitors who come to Dealey Plaza to learn more about the assassination. Yeah, we were unable to get into it. It was during COVID, so, you know, yeah. that little thing called COVID. So you had to previously buy tickets for it. Yeah, that was something that may or may not still be the case. I believe that you, of course, can buy tickets ahead of time, but I'm not sure that it is mandatory to do it ahead of time and maybe some of it is that it fills up pretty quick and you, there's only so many tickets that you can get and so make sure you check that out before you go <laughs> and the rest of it you can wander around of course and see outside um november 22nd 1963 president john f kennedy is assassinated in dealey plaza the texas school book depository building becomes the epicenter of world shock grief outrage this exhibit, John F. Kennedy and the Memory of a Nation, provides historical context for the events of November 22, 1963, and the aftermath of the assassination. The sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository was the primary crime scene for the JFK assassination. Visitors will see historic images, news footage, artifacts, and original evidentiary areas. 
The exhibit's introductory section outlines the major social movements and political events of the 1960s. Thought-provoking images, artifacts, and a short video acclimate you to the period. While presenting insights in the JFK, his family, and the major issues his administration faced. A short video will highlight the enthusiastic crowds cheering on Kennedy's visit and his trip on November 21st. They also have the space that you can visit right there at the corner window. And this evidentiary space is accurately recreated based on the crime scene photos. There's interactive touchscreens overlooking Dealey Plaza. So you can actually be right there at the window, looking out the window of that historic site. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, it sounds, I don't know, it's a little interesting. They have a few artifacts there as well. Lee Harvey Oswald's wedding ring, oh. Jack Ruby's recognizable hat, and the camera used by Dallas Times Herald photographer Bob Jackson, and he captured the Pulitzer Prize winning photo of the shooting. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Seems kind of sad to get a Pulitzer Prize for being the one to shoot the picture of the president being shot. You know, a camera does have a barrel on it. It does shoot. That is true. And then there's the corner staircase. It's also an evidentiary area on the sixth floor, and it is recreated from the crime scene photos as well, taken from November 22nd. On display, you will see an Italian-made Manlooker 6.5mm Carcano rifle identical to the one found in the northwest corner of the sixth floor by the investigators. Oh my. Yeah. I mean, like, on one hand, you're like, that's pretty cool. On the other hand, you're like, that's not as cool, because murder. This exhibit provides historical context for the events of that day, and visitors would see historical images, news footage, artifacts, and original evidentiary areas. Yeah, and I think that would have been interesting to see, but just being able to walk around the grounds and the area, it really did give you more of a feel and an understanding of exactly where the car was and you know where he was and just to be there just felt to be a part of history oh for sure i don't really feel the need that we had to you know go through the museum to get the full experience i, I think it would be too. really cool but. it was fine right it was okay that we didn't to me the craziest part was that on the road where the x's are there's still cars driving on that road mm -hmm. i don't know i feel like you would kind of like you know get a little itch on the back of your head while you're driving past those you're like oh, oh i don't know yeah yep you're right <laughs> Also, to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. Day and celebrate Black History Month, which is this month of February, the museum has assembled a special series of civil rights-related oral histories called Voices from the Civil Rights Movement. The first episode premiered on Martin Luther King Jr. Day and weekly installments have followed each Friday, and you can see these on YouTube. And so that is called Voices from the Civil Rights Movement. Check that out. All right, Dallin. So to talk about JFK, I mean, wow. Wow. It's a subject, there's right? There's a lot there. I mean, there's yeah. a whole lot. And for one of the first times since I started the podcast, felt like the story was so much bigger than I could almost wrap around in an episode. <laughs> and so much information, so much so... I am not claiming at all that this is like a complete history of JFK. 
I'm just trying to take kind of highlights and bits and pieces that I thought was interesting and just to highlight this president on President's Day. Amen. So let's dive in. Let's do it. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born in Brookline, Massachusetts on May 29, 1917. The Fitzgerald name came from his mother's side of the family. Her name was Rose Elizabeth Fitzgerald. She was a Boston debutante, and her father, Johnny Fitzgerald, nicknamed Honey Fitz, was a skilled politician who served as congressman and as the mayor of Boston. Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., was a successful banker who made a fortune on the stock market after World War I. He had a government career as a chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission and was an ambassador to Great Britain. Right, and so we see that there was already a family history of politics. Oh, going well, that's on good. There. John, nicknamed Jack, was the second oldest of nine siblings. Nine? You've heard of a few of his brothers and sisters. His sister Eunice was the founder of the Special Olympics. Oh. Robert was a U.S. Attorney General and was also assassinated. Oh, my. And their brother Ted was a senator for many, many years. The Kennedy children were always close and supportive of each other. Joseph and Rose were very focused on their children's education. Their father, Joe Sr., was nearly obsessed about each and every detail of his kids' lives. He seemed pretty harsh and controlling of them, to be honest, and he had big plans and lots of expectations for these kids. He installed in them a fierce competitiveness and the belief that winning was the only thing. Not only everything, it was the only thing. <laughs> the Kennedy kids were entered into swimming and sailing competitions, and they were expected to win and were berated by their father if they didn't win first place. Second didn't matter. It was that the second is only the first loser kind of mentality. Oh, good times. And Jack bought into his father's philosophy that winning was everything. His sister Eunice said once, quote, He hates to lose at anything. That's the only thing Jack gets really emotional about when he loses, unquote. Oh Did he win his first election? Was that like he just like his first try he got it? At president, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. JFK's earliest memories involved accompanying his grandfather Fitzgerald on walking tours of historic sites in Boston and discussions at the family dinner table talking about politics. Sparking his interest in history and public service, he was also a member of the Boy Scouts. Oh, I actually knew that. Yeah, you were a Boy Scout too. Once upon a time. In 1927, the family decided to move from Boston by a private railway car to the Riverdale neighborhood of New York City. Don't we all move by private railway car? Uh, yeah. I mean, are these like these secret tunnels I keep hearing about? Or are they... <laughs> no, they just had their, their very own train. Yes. I mean, they certainly were probably rich enough, so. Oh, they were rich. There you go. But they moved to the Riverdale neighborhood of New York City. Several years later, his brother Robert told Look Magazine that his father had left Boston because of signs that read, No Irish Need Apply. I think sometimes we forget that there was inequality for many different races, religions, people in the earlier days of our country. And Irish Catholics were one of those that really they got it hard. suffered of that. They did. The family spent summers and early autumns at their home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, a village on Cape Cod, 
where they enjoyed swimming, sailing, and touch football. Christmas and Easter holidays were spent at their winter retreat in Palm Beach, Florida. Well, excuse me. Despite his father's constant reprimands, young Jack Kennedy wasn't really a great student, and he had a mischievous side. Oh boy. He attended a Catholic boys' boarding school in Connecticut called Canterbury, where he did well in English and history, you know, the subjects he enjoyed, but he nearly flunked Latin. Okay, but to be fair, like, I would not pass Latin if I, I wanted know. to. <laughs> How many people wouldn't flunk Latin? Uh, amen I mean, to that. Really. His father wrote to him in school saying, If I didn't really feel you had the goods, I would be most charitable in my attitude toward your failings. <laughs> I'm not expecting too much, and I will not be disappointed if you don't turn out to be a real genius. But I think you can be a really worthwhile citizen with good judgment and understanding. Unquote. I'm going to make that like a plaque wow. in my room. Can be you imagine <laughs> if I wrote that to you? Be a really worthwhile citizen. I don't think meaning. I'm expecting too much. I don't expect, I'm not going to be disappointed if you don't turn out to be a real genius. I mean, as long as I'm a worthwhile citizen. <laughs> in April 1931, he had an appendectomy, um, after which he had to withdraw from the school and recuperate at home. It starts to show that he had many, many health problems over the years. He wasn't a healthy person, and he had lots of back pain as well. The next year, Kennedy started attending Choate, a prestigious boarding school in Connecticut for 9 through 12th graders. His older brother, Joe Jr., had already been at Choate for two years and was a football player and leading student. He spent his first years at Choate in his older brother's shadow. Some of us know a little bit about that. I have an older brother. <laughs> <laughs> he compensated for this with rebellious behavior that got him attention and followers. Their most notorious stunt was exploding a toilet seat with a powerful firecracker. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> In the next chapel assembly, the strict headmaster held up the broken toilet seat and spoke of certain muckers who would spit in our sea. Whichever that means. Yeah, I don't know. I, spit I in our sea. Afterward, the defiant Jack took a cue and named his group the Muckers Club. It's like the breakfast club for private <laughs> school they're students. mucking about <laughs> in the dark Gosh. and making mischief. During his years at Choate, Kennedy was beset by health problems and doctors thought at one point that he may even have leukemia. Whoa. But in June 1934, he was admitted to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota where they diagnosed him with colitis. Kennedy <laughs> finished his high school career 64th in a class of 112 students. Hey, that's 50%. So he was kind of middle in there. He had been the business manager of the school yearbook and was voted the most likely to succeed. Hey, yo. Let's go, John F. He graduated from Choate, then spent one semester at Princeton. Next, Kennedy transferred to Harvard University in 1936. There he repeated his pattern, doing fantastic in the classes he enjoyed, but still only earning average grades due to his favorite diversion, sports, and women. He was handsome, had an infectious smile, dark thick hair, and he was incredibly popular with his classmates. His friend Lem Billings recalled, Jack was more fun than anyone I've ever known. 
and I think most people who knew him felt the same way about him. Kennedy was also an incorrigible womanizer. He wrote to Billings during his sophomore year, I can now get tail as often and as free as I want, which is a step in the right direction. Oh, tail, huh? That is the political, wow, that the was correct way to say that. <laughs> that was classy, wasn't Real it? Real classy. I'm sure he didn't want that little letter exposed to the whole world there about getting tail as often and as much as he wanted. As his university career continued, he grew more serious about his studies and began to realize his potential. By this time, his father had been appointed ambassador to Great Britain, and in June 1938, Kennedy sailed overseas with his father and older brother to work at the American Embassy in London, where his father was FDR's U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James. In 1939, Kennedy toured Europe, the Soviet Union, the Balkans, and the Middle East in preparation for his Harvard senior honor thesis. Wouldn't that be amazing to be able to tour Europe because you were writing your senior college thesis? I mean, in the way of excuses go, it's not that bad. Yeah, I'll take it. Honestly. Kennedy decided to research why Britain was so unprepared to fight Germany in World War II. While in Berlin, the U.S. diplomatic representative gave him a secret message about war breaking out soon to pass on to his father, Czechoslovakia, before returning to London on September 1st, 1939, the day that Germany invaded Poland. Whoa. And that marked the beginning of World War II. Two days later, his family was in the House of Commons for speeches endorsing the United Kingdom's declaration of war on Germany. The thesis, the appeasement in Munich about British negotiations during the Munich Agreement, was so well received that by Kennedy's graduation in 1940, it was published as a book. Why England Slept, and it sold more than 80,000 copies. Kennedy's father sent him a cablegram, two things I always knew about you, one, that you were smart, and two, that you were a swell guy. Love, Dad. Well, it's good to hear that their dad also gave them props when they succeeded, too. It wasn't all just... I mean, if you're going to push them like that, you better. <laughs> True. Also, side note, his dad, he was really against Winston Churchill, and anyway, he ended up then losing his spot as the American ambassador and was sent back to the U.S. kind of in disgrace, so. That's awkward. Kennedy graduated cum laude from Harvard in 1940 with a Bachelor of Arts in Government, concentrating on international affairs. That fall, he enrolled at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and audited classes there. In early 1941, Kennedy left and helped his father write a memoir of his time as an American ambassador. He then traveled throughout South America, including Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. Kennedy planned to attend Yale Law School after auditing courses on business law at Stanford, but canceled when American entry into World War II seemed imminent. In 1940, Kennedy attempted to enter the Army's Officer Candidate School, and despite months of training, he was medically disqualified due to his chronic lower back problems, and he then entered as a member of the Reserves. Kennedy was called into active duty in the Navy and was assigned to command a patrol torpedo boat, 109, in the South Pacific, and these boats were known as a PT boat. In April 1943, Kennedy was assigned to Motor Torpedo Squadron 2, 
which was based at the time on Tulagi Island in the Solomons. PT-109 was on its 31st mission with 14 other PTs ordered to block or repel four Japanese destroyers and float planes carrying food, supplies, and 900 Japanese soldiers to the garrison on the southern tip of the Solomon's Kalambangara Island. On that dark and moonless night, Kennedy spotted a Japanese destroyer heading north on its return from the base of Kalambangara around 2 a.m. and attempted to turn to attack when PT-109 was rammed suddenly at an angle and was cut in half by another destroyer which killed two of his crew members. That's intense. Kennedy gathered his surviving 10 crew members not wanting to have to surrender. They decided to swim towards Plum Pudding Island, which sounds good, but it was only three and a half miles oh, gosh. southwest of the remains of their PT boat. Oh man. So, despite re-injuring his back in the collision they had had, Kennedy towed a badly burned crewman through the water to the island with a life jacket strap clenched between his teeth. That's what I'm talking about. Kennedy made an additional two-mile swim the next day to Ferguson Passage to attempt to hail a passing American PT boat to expedite his crew's rescue. And he attempted to make the trip on a subsequent night in a damaged canoe found on Nauru Island, where he had to swim with Enzyme George Ross to look for food. On August 4th, he and his executive officer, Enzyme Lenny Tome, assisted his injured and hungry crew on a demanding swim, which this time was three and three quarter miles oh my gosh. southeast to Olasana Island, which was visible to the crew from their desolate home on Plum Pudding Island. He's really trying to get his There was in. no food, no water on their island. They had to do something. They swam against a strong current, so I don't know that I could swim almost four miles with no current. Honestly. But swimming against a strong current, and once again, Kennedy towed the badly burned motor machinist, Pappy McMahon, by his life vest. The somewhat larger Olasana Island had ripe coconut trees, but still no fresh water. On the following day, August 5th, Kennedy and Ensign George Ross made the one-hour swim to Nauru Island, an additional distance of about half a mile southwest, in search of help and food. Kennedy and Ross found a small canoe, Packages of crackers, candy, and a 50-gallon drum of drinkable water left by the Japanese, which Kennedy paddled another half mile back to Olasana in the acquired canoe to provide for his hungry crew. Native coast watchers discovered the 109 crew on Olasana Island, and on the morning of August 7th, Lieutenant Bud Libano, a friend and former tentmate of Kennedy's, rescued Kennedy and his crew August 8th, 1943. Sounds like all that childhood swimming competitions paid off. Yeah, he had to have been a really strong swimmer. And yeah. to do all of that swimming, helping an injured man, that just sounds really grueling. So 
I guess he was grateful <laughs> that his dad pushed him to win all of those races. Yeah, that's pretty intense. After a month, doctors thought Kennedy had recovered enough and returned to duty. And he then commanded the PT-59. And after serving for a time under doctor's orders, Kennedy was relieved of his command on November 18th and sent to a hospital on Tulagi. From there, he returned to the United States in early January 1944, where he received treatment for his back injury. Kennedy was hospitalized at the Chelsea Naval Hospital in Chelsea, Massachusetts from May to December 1944. Wow, that was really long. So he was there from May to December in the hospital. That's like seven months yeah. in the hospital. And they were like, patch him up, put him back out on the boat. Yeah, he's good enough. And then later spends seven months in the hospital. And that's just kind of how it happened in war, though. Yeah. Are you breathing? Great. Uh-huh. Get back out there. Yeah. On June 12th, he was presented the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for his heroic actions on August 1st and 2nd, 1943, and the Purple Heart Medal for his back injury while on PT-109. Beginning in January 1945, Kennedy spent three more months recovering from his back injury at Castle Hot Springs, a resort and temporary military hospital in Arizona. So you're telling me, is if I'm in battle, and I break a toe, I can get the Purple Heart? But like after doing something cool? If I break my toe while doing something cool, do I get the Purple Heart? No. Okay. No. It's like you risked your life and you were injured to save other people. After the war, Kennedy felt that the medal he had received for heroism was not a combat award and asked that he be reconsidered for the Silver Star Medal, for which he'd been recommended initially. Kennedy's father also requested that his son receive the Silver Star, which is awarded for gallantry in action. On August 12, 1944, Kennedy's older brother, Joe Jr., a Navy pilot, was killed while on a special and hazardous air mission for which he had volunteered. His explosive-laden plane blew up when its bombs detonated prematurely over the English Channel. This was on March 1, 1945. That actually happened a lot. That had to have just been so sad for their whole family, losing their oldest brother and their son. So Kennedy retires from the Navy Reserve on physical disability and was honorably discharged with the full rank of lieutenant. When later asked how he became a war hero, Kennedy joked, It was easy. They cut my PT boat in half. In 1950, the Department of the Navy offered Kennedy a Bronze Star Medal Ooh. in recognition of his meritorious service, which he declined. Ooh. Kennedy's two original medals are currently on display at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. Man, he's just not letting the Army give him anything, man. <laughs> Kennedy's older brother, Joe Jr., was said to be handsome, athletic, intelligent, and ambitious. And their father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., had always said that his son would become President of the United States someday. After his brother's death, Jack, as the next oldest, took the family's hopes and aspirations upon himself. Somebody in this family is going to be president. Somebody was. I think their father actually had aspirations for himself at one point, And then with everything that happened over in Britain, that was just kind of... Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Down the tubes. And so then it's like... My children are going to be the president. Boy, he really was working towards the presidency here. Well, shoot. 
After Kennedy got back from the war, he worked briefly as a reporter for Hearst Newspapers. No. Then, in 1946, Hearst Newspapers as in Citizen Kane? Then in 1946, at the age of 29, he decided to run for the U.S. House of Representatives. Oh my. And with their family money and prestige, he easily won the election. However, after the glory and excitement of the past few years, Kennedy kind of found his actual work as a Democratic congressman pretty dull. Oh dang. He did serve three terms, but he really didn't feel that it was very rewarding or that he was making an impact. Who goes from being a reporter to a, like a U.S. House of Representative man? I, I don't know. And with the help of his brother Robert as his campaign manager, he ran in 1952 for the Senate. Hmm. According to one of his aides, the deciding factor in Kennedy winning the election was his personality. Quote, he was the new kind of political figure that people were looking for that year. Hmm. Dignified and gentlemanly and well-educated and intelligent, without the air of superior condescension. <laughs> in an election year in which Republicans gained control of both houses of Congress, Kennedy nevertheless won in his state by a narrow victory. Well, there you go. Shortly after his election, Kennedy met a beautiful young woman named Jacqueline Bouvier at a dinner party, and in his own words, he leaned across the asparagus and asked her for a date. <laughs> Isn't that how it works, Dallin? The asparagus. You just, you just lean across the asparagus and you ask a girl for a date. Just a few months after meeting, JFK and Jackie began courting. And by summer of 1953, the couple was engaged. They were an incredible match, both intelligent and educated. They were married on September 12, 1953. Their daughter, Caroline, was born in 1957, and their son, John Jr., was born in 1960. Kennedy continued to suffer frequent illness during his career in the Senate. In 1955, while recuperating from another back operation, he wrote another book, profiling eight senators who had taken outrageous but unpopular stances. It was named Profiles in Courage, which won the 1957 Pulitzer Prize for Biography. And Kennedy remains the only American president to have won a Pulitzer Prize. That's a flex. Yeah. Kennedy served eight years in the Senate. And he was bored by the Massachusetts-specific issues on which he had to spend much of his time and he was actually drawn more to the international challenges posed by the Soviet Union's growing nuclear arsenal and the Cold War battle for third world nations. Hey. In 1956, Kennedy almost gained the Democratic nomination for vice president, but didn't in the end. And then four years later was a first ballot nominee for president. He selected Senate Majority Leader Lyndon B. Johnson as his running mate. Kennedy's presidential campaign was a family affair, funded by his father and with his younger brother, Robert, acting as his campaign manager. Millions watched his television debates with the Republican candidate, Richard M. Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> these were the first televised presidential debates in U.S. history. During these programs, Nixon had an injured leg, five o'clock shadow, and was perspiring, making him look tense and uncomfortable. Kennedy wore makeup, appeared relaxed, yet energetic and healthy, which helped the large television audience to view him as the winner. On average, radio listeners thought that Nixon had won or that the debates were a draw. The debates are now considered a milestone in American political history, the point at which the medium of television began to play a dominant role in politics. 
On November 8, 1960, Kennedy defeated Nixon by a razor-thin margin to become the 35th president of the United States of America. He was the first Roman Catholic to ever become president. Kennedy's election was historic in several respects. At the age of 43, he was the second youngest American president in history, second only to Theodore Roosevelt, who assumed the office at 42. (laughs) And he was the first president born in the 20th century. That's kind of funny. Delivering his inaugural address, Kennedy sought to inspire all Americans and used the phrase, now known to most Americans, Quote, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Preach, sister. Thanks. (laughs) Jack and Jackie, along with Caroline and John Jr., were moved into the White House as the first family. Jackie Kennedy was an invaluable part of JFK's political image, as well as wife and mother. She became a fashion icon of the day and became one of the people's most loved first ladies in American history. A letter from Jackie to her husband in 1957 or 58 was sold recently at auction and in it she wrote a little about the relationship and their stance apart due to his political campaigning. She wrote, quote, I know everyone says married couples should never separate as you get off the same wavelength, but I think it is usually good when we go away from each other as we both realize so much. You are an atypical husband, increasingly so in one way or another every year since we've been married. So you mustn't be surprised to have an atypical wife, Jackie wrote. Each of us would have been so lonely with the normal kind. I can't write down what I feel for you, but I will show you when I am with you. And I think you must know. All my love, Jackie." In the years that followed, the Kennedys became one of the most iconic couples in American culture. But behind the scenes, things were tense. That's an understatement. Mm -hmm. JFK was a ladies' man and reportedly carried out several affairs during his presidency, including with Hollywood icon Marilyn Monroe. To only be fair. name one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, to be fair, it, it is was Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. <laughs> All right, Jack, we'll give you Marilyn. I'm okay? not going to give him Marilyn. <laughs> no, actually, here's the thing. I will give him Marilyn if you actually snuck her in with secret tunnels. If that's the okay. case. Okay. <laughs> I will give him that if he actually succeeded. Jackie once said, Life's too short to worry about Marilyn Monroe. Oh my. She once told her sister of JFK's rumored affair with the star. This is awkward. And to be fair, most of his dalliances, I wouldn't even say were affairs. He just really wanted lots of women and we'll leave it at that. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, but yeah, it was it was a thing. It's a funny it, part about JFK's was, history that they talk about. It's kind of awkward. You're like, well, this this happened, but you know, you don't want to draw too much light on it because he did some good stuff as president. He just didn't do some great things as a maybe a husband. Yeah, there is that. 
though Jackie was supposedly aware of these affairs and she was deeply unhappy with them, she was also really dedicated to her role as the First Lady, and as such, she was expected to look the other way and focus on other things, and especially their children. This sounds like a healthy marriage. (laughs) I know. And sadly, really, oh, it's so sad. And during this time, this also included giving birth by emergency cesarean to a little son, Patrick, and this was prematurely at 34 and a half weeks gestation, and he lived only three days. Oh, man. They are in the White House. I mean, we can't even remember a time that the president and his wife had a baby in the White House time, right? I mean, children, you know, at varying ages, yes, but um, what a horrible time, and this is the same year that her husband is killed as well, and anyway, I can only just imagine what she went through during this time of what her husband was doing and what was happening as her role as first lady and then to lose this baby. What a sad time for Jackie. Amen. She was very dedicated to her husband and children both before and during their time in the White House. She was an amazing lady. The American citizens just adored Jackie and supposedly Jack loved her too in his own way. It appears that his affairs were an open secret that Jackie was never happy about, of course. It seems that JFK loved his wife and she loved him back. It was a marriage of its time, quote, a friend of the family told People magazine. I just think there were times in history that it was the men will be men mentality and that the women were just supposed to look the other way because what else could they do? Oh, I just really feel for her. And she was so gorgeous herself. She was this fashion icon, this wonderful wife and mother, bright, beautiful, successful, and she deserved so much better than what she got. And I'll just leave it at that. But Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. I don't even like her that much. (laughs) Sounds like, but Marilyn. (laughs) How do you even make that happen? I'm not getting into it. <laughs> you're a super famous movie star, I mean, and you're like, the president. And do you get like a invitation letter? <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me. You'll come to my secret tunnel um, entrance here in Minnesota. That leads to <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a whole ordeal. Exactly. So now we're gonna get into more the foreign affairs. Right. So Kennedy felt that his accomplishments as president were mostly in foreign dealings and yet we know there were a few really bad times in yeah. you know this time period with the alliance for progress and the peace corps his goal was to bring american idealism to the aid of developing nations the peace corps was created by executive order in 1961 and by the end of the century over 170,000 peace corps volunteers would serve in 135 countries that's really cool i know the peace corps they're they're legit it's, it's awesome which today the peace corps still sends volunteers on two-year missions to live and work with people around the globe and then the alliance for progress which was created in 61 and that fostered greater economic ties with latin america in the hopes of relieving poverty and stopping the spread of communism in the region and the latin americans just really loved kennedy as well 
Kennedy also presided over a series of international crises. I'm sure you've heard of the Bay of Pigs invasion. We could write a whole book just on the Bay of Pigs, but just as a highlight, it took place on April 15th, 1961, shortly after his inauguration, and this was the covert mission to overthrow the leftist Cuban leader, Fidel Castro, by permitting a band of 1,500 Cuban refugees who had been armed and trained by the CIA to invade their homeland. Unfortunately, the mission was a disaster and was a huge embarrassment for Kennedy. By August 19th, the Cuban government had captured or killed the invading exiles, and Kennedy was forced to negotiate for the release of the 1,189 survivors. 20 months later, Cuba released the captured exile in exchange for $53 million worth of food and medicine. Soon thereafter, the Soviet Union renewed its campaign against West Berlin. Kennedy replied by reinforcing the Berlin garrison and increasing the nation's military strength. Confronted by his reaction, Moscow, after the erection of the Berlin Wall in 1961, relaxed its pressure in Central Europe. The greatest crisis of the Kennedy administration was the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. Eighth grade social studies is actually making sense now. <laughs> when it was discovered that the Soviet Union was seeking to install ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba by air reconnaissance, Kennedy imposed a quarantine on all offensive weapons bound for Cuba. He blockaded the island and vowed to defend the United States by any cost. To say the least, the next few days were more than nail-biting. Just terrifying mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. During which the world seemed on the brink of nuclear war, the agreement was struck for the Soviet Union to remove the missiles and Kennedy promised not to invade Cuba and to remove American missiles from Turkey. The American response to the Cuban crisis evidently persuaded Moscow of the futility of nuclear blackmail. Eight months later, in June 1963, Kennedy successfully negotiated the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty with Great Britain and the Soviet Union, helping to ease Cold War tensions. It was one of his accomplishments that he felt most proud of. The most contentious point here at home during Kennedy's presidency was the civil right issue. In 1962, Kennedy sent his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, to Mississippi to use the National Guard and federal marshals to escort and defend civil rights activist James Meredith as he became the first black student to enroll at the University of Mississippi on October 1st, 1962. With ever-increasing demands, he took action in the cause of equal rights and called for new civil rights legislation. Near the end of 1963, in the wake of the March on Washington and Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Kennedy finally sent a civil rights bill to Congress. Before the bill could get through Congress, JFK was assassinated in Dallas. It was one of the last acts of his presidency and his life. Kennedy's bill eventually passed as the landmark Civil Rights Act in 1964. Kennedy gets assassinated? <laughs> Plot twist! Spoilers! Oh my gosh! That did come way sooner than I thought, though. I was really kind of invested in the story there. They was like, oh, by the way, it's he got shot. And you're like, I know. what? I know. Which I'm sure is how the country kind of felt. 
Exactly. It was very shocking. And even the newscasters, like there's a famous clip by Walter Cronkite and he breaks up like he literally is crying on the mm -hmm. air. Like you never see that. Yeah. But it was so shocking and so devastating and just horrific that a president could be shot out in the open like that and was really devastating to the country. Kennedy had also challenged the U.S. to be the first country to send a man to the moon by the end of the 1960s. The United States reached President Kennedy's goal on July 20th, 1969, when the crew of Apollo 11 landed on the lunar surface. A quote by JFK from an address in Frankfurt in 1963 is, For time and the world do not stand still. Change is the law of life and those who look only to the past or the present are certain to miss the future. I think that's a good one. I do like that. I like it. On November 11th, 1963, President Kennedy laid a Veterans Day wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. How could anyone know that he would be buried at the same cemetery exactly two weeks later? Oh, man. On November 21st, 1963, President Kennedy flew to Fort Worth, Texas for a campaign appearance. Jacqueline Kennedy rarely traveled with her husband on political trips, but decided to go with him on the trip. The next day, November 22nd, the couple attended a breakfast in Fort Worth. Then Kennedy, along with his wife Jackie, and Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, rode through cheering crowds in downtown Dallas in a Lincoln Continental convertible. The presidential open-top limousine had been flown in from D.C. for the parade. A whole car had been flown in. They flew in the car. Wow. <laughs> the things you can do. I know. Well, when you're the president. When you're the president, amen. It, it is a presidential limousine. They drove together through downtown Dallas, beaming and waving at the crowd. An estimated 200,000 people came out to see the president that day. But as the car crossed Dealey Plaza, shots suddenly rang out. Time seemed to stop, and the president slumped forward. The president had been shot. Texas Governor John Connolly Jr. received multiple gunshot wounds as well. The president was rushed to the Parkland Memorial Hospital while cradled in the arms of his wife, and shortly thereafter was pronounced dead at the age of 46. Dallas law enforcement officials soon initiated a search of the Texas School Book Depository within 45 minutes. Three spent cartridge shells are discovered within a sniper's perch in the southeast corner of the sixth floor. Lyndon B. Johnson took the oath of office aboard Air Force One. He became president 99 minutes after Kennedy's death. Kennedy's body was also aboard the plane for the return flight to Washington. Judge Sarah Hughes wept as she administered the oath of office. Jackie Kennedy was there standing frozen at Johnson's side, while he was sworn into office. She had refused to leave Dallas without her husband's body. She'd also refused to take off her pink Chanel suit stained with her husband's blood. She told Lady Bird Johnson, I want them to see what they have done to Jack. Jackie did, however, remove her wedding ring and put it on her husband's finger to be buried with him. Although, later, she had an aide retrieve the ring. Before he was buried? Mm -hmm. Okay, just checking. That'd be <laughs> yeah. awkward to exhume him over that. The narrative that we've been taught all of these nearly 60 years is that the president was shot from an upstairs window of the Texas School Book Depository building. 
by a 24-year-old warehouse worker named Lee Harvey Oswald, who was a former Marine with Soviet and Communist sympathies, who fired upon the car, hitting the president. 45 minutes after shots rang out in Dealey Plaza, Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett is murdered in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. Suspect Lee Harvey Oswald, a temporary employee at the Texas Coal Book Depository, is arrested and charged with both murders. A Dallas nightclub owner named Jack Ruby assassinated Oswald 48 hours later while he was being transferred between jails. Oswald's murder by Jack Ruby on November 24th was the first homicide caught on live television. Oh my gosh. They were televising the move of the president's killer. And he just got dropped. And yes. Wow. A police detective at the shooting called out, Jack, you SOB. While being wrestled to the ground by police, Ruby kept crying out, I'm Jack Ruby, you all know me. Gosh. Oswald died at the same hospital as Kennedy two days and seven minutes after the president. Wow. Well, in the museum, a short video explores investigations while visual displays examine the acoustical evidence, photographs, forensic and ballistic tests, and other materials. Featured artifacts include a scale model of Dealey Plaza prepared by the FBI for use by the Warren Commission in 1964, as well as 12 cameras used by eyewitnesses in Dealey Plaza on November 22, 1963. On September 24, 1964, the Warren Commission's 889-page report is presented to President Johnson. It concludes that Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated JFK with no evidence of conspiracy. Criticism of this report and lingering questions have prompted decades of research and debate. The death of President Kennedy was an unspeakable national tragedy, and to this date, many people can tell you the exact moment that they learned of his death and where they were. The news spread across the country. Americans gathered around radios and TV sets. They sobbed in the streets and stared at newspaper headlines. But the saga was far from over. In Washington, dignitaries from more than 100 countries arrived for Kennedy's funeral. At the time, it was the largest gathering of its kind on U.S. soil. An unexpected 250,000 people paid their respects to the former president as he lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Tens of thousands were turned away, some having waited throughout a near-freezing night in a line that stretched for more than two miles. Jackie Kennedy modeled her husband's funeral ceremonies after Abraham Lincoln's. And we've all seen the heart-rending photo of tiny John F. Kennedy Jr., who turned three on the day of his father's funeral, as he salutes the casket of his father as it's carried out of St. Michael's Cathedral in Washington, D.C., while Jacqueline Kennedy and Robert Kennedy stand behind the boy. With help from Bobby Kennedy and Robert McNamara, Jackie chose the burial site at Arlington National Cemetery. Jackie requested an eternal flame be put by the grave. Arlington National Cemetery, the most famous cemetery in the country, is the final resting place for many of our nation's greatest heroes, including more than 300,000 veterans of every American conflict from the Revolutionary War to Iraq and Afghanistan. Since its founding in 1866, Arlington National Cemetery has provided us all in place to reflect upon the sacrifices made by the men and women of the United States Armed Forces in the name of our country. 
We love our men and women in uniform. And we definitely will do a whole episode dedicated to Arlington at some point. And, but it's still one that's on our bucket list. And yeah. So when we go there, that will definitely be a tearjerker. Yeah. Although Jackie would remarry, today she is buried next to the president. And two of their children, the infant son, Patrick, that we talked about that died during their time in the White House, and a stillborn daughter are also buried with their parents there. The funeral day, November 25th, which I said was poor little John's birthday, his third birthday, and Caroline would turn six two days later. A taxi driver reported that the funeral crowds were oddly quiet. You could hear a pin drop. An Irish military guard paid its respects graveside following commands shouted in Gaelic. Near midnight that night, she and Bobby Kennedy paid an unplanned visit to Kennedy's grave. The first two letters that Lyndon Johnson wrote as president were to Caroline and John Jr. The image of Kennedy's presidency and life for many has been called Camelot, Mm -hmm. the idyllic castle of the legendary King Arthur. As his wife Jackie Kennedy said after his death, there'll be great presidents again and the Johnsons are wonderful. They've been wonderful to me, but there'll never be another Camelot again. And this is what the public saw, Camelot, a fairy tale that the Kennedys were practically a royal family. Historians widely differ on the success of the Kennedy presidency from wild admiration to the depths of debauchery, but there are millions of documentaries, books, and movies, all of the above on JFK. I'm not bringing up anything new or crazy here on my little (laughs) podcast, but so I'm just going to stick to the facts and kind of the middle ground. I'm really not that interested in debating politics or history, so I'll just leave you some interesting books and sources for you on the blog if you care to read more on the subject. It's really easy to do. Just YouTube alone has a zillion (laughs) videos. But, you know, you can't deny that President Kennedy was revered and loved by the country during his time in office and that his death and his loss was really just deeply mourned throughout the United States and the rest of the world. 60 years ago, a seven-man commission, the Warren Commission, concluded that Oswald acted alone in the shooting of the president in Dallas on November 22nd. The commission concluded that Oswald killed Kennedy because he was a disaffected, profoundly maladjusted loner with communist sympathies. So in comes Dr. Cyril Wetched. He is the former coroner of Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, and Wetched is both a trained lawyer and doctor who's conducted more than 17,000 autopsies and also provided expert testimony on high-profile cases, including the deaths of Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Elvis Presley, John JonBenet Ramsey, and Lacey Peterson. Dr. Wedged was the first non-governmental forensic pathologist to be able to gain access to the National Archives to examine the assassination materials on JFK in 1972. While doing that, he discovered that Kennedy's brain was missing from these artifacts 
as well as many shocking lapses in the official probe into his death. Well, can you imagine they just lost the president's brain? What? That's not important. What Wetch believed back then, and he still believes after 60 years of researching the subject, was that the shooter may have been a hired gun committing murder for the CIA. The CIA? Right? What? (laughs) He believes that the CIA ordered JFK's death and then covered it up. I went from zero to 100 real quick. It, yeah. He also claims Kennedy was shot twice in the head from the back and the front, which would necessitate two gunmen. What? (laughs) He has a new book, and it's just out, called JFK Assassination Dissected. Oh my gosh. I haven't read it, but I've ordered it. And I've just read articles and watched videos that he is on and talking about his research and his new book. And I'm really intrigued. I've always kind of believed the conspiracy theories. Um, It just seems to me that there were some really kind of off things that happened. And even the way the autopsy was done and who was allowed to do the autopsy and Everything in between just tells me that there's a lot more to the story than the American public has been led to believe. Oh my gosh. And research says that most Americans as well have continued to believe that Oswald did not act alone. And in 1976, one year after the public release of the Zapruder film, was that the 1963 home movie made by Dallas clothier Abraham Zapruder capturing the moment JFK was shot 81% said that they believed more than one gunman was involved I mean 80% of the population is kind of large and by just five years ago that figure was still as high as 60% that's more than 50 (laughs) exactly so I feel like there's a lot we can still learn and so anyway check out his book if you're interested in the conspiracy theory (laughs) oh but you know who did do it marilyn monroe (laughs) there's conspiracy theories because his brother bobby also had an affair with marilyn monroe oh my he was killed she ended up dead i mean there's a lot i mean martin luther king yeah There's a whole lot of strangeness that happened with people getting killed. And even though hers wasn't a shooting, I don't know. There's just a lot of really strange connections right there. So anyway, that's as far into the conspiracy theories. But I'm just going to leave it kind of hanging there. Like, maybe we think we know what happened. Yeah. But what lies beneath? Thanks for being with us here today, Dallin. Got you. And all the rest of you, happy President's Day. Hope you're doing something fun with your family. America. America. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. information 
about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. Imagining yourself as the